Hello folks, welcome back. I'm Simon Ward and I am your host for this High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast. Firstly, the podcast, my website and my regular newsletters all focus on the goal of helping you to achieve peak human and athletic performance as I attempt to interpret the science and then translate it into easy to understand lessons for you. So if you enjoy the podcast, I've created a membership program which allows me to provide you more in-depth exclusive content and programs so that you can take your performance to the next level. At the end of the episode, I'll explain about these benefits in more detail and let you know how you can join our growing tribe. Let's talk about today's guest. Have you ever wondered about how some folks manage to achieve so much? Today's guest is outlaw ambassador, Mr. Donald Brooks. Donald is a 45-year-old husband and father of two growing boys and by day he's an electrical engineer and at the weekends he turns himself into a superhuman triathlete. In 2022 he became the first GB age grouper ever to win all four age group titles across five different events. He routinely manages to complete 16 to 18 hours of training every week and in today's show we'll explore exactly how he has become such a dominant force in GB age group triathlon. So without further ado, let's hear from Donald. Welcome to the show, Mr. Donald Brooks. Hello, nice to be here. Yeah, and uh, you you should recognise the background I've got on here, a place that you're familiar with, I think, early morning, sunrise. That's it, I've stood on that start line looking down that lake with the sun coming up many a time and um, yeah, it's always um, brace nerves. Uh, yeah, it's it's a good place to be. It's, um, I do like the background. Yeah, I should explain for the listeners who can't see this background that this is the early morning sunrise that we so often get at Home Pierpont, which um, will be there again in a, a a few days for the Outlaw Half, and then again for the Outlaw Full at the end of July. But both races, which you're familiar with, Donald, and we'll we'll talk about uh, in due course. Um, particularly as you are one of our outlaw ambassadors um, something else we'll come to but i'd like to rewind um right back to the very start you are a latecomer to triathlete i think you were 37 is that right when you started um that's so right yeah 37 have, back yeah. in 2014 all right and what what did you do before that then i, I mean because i when, when we get on to talk about some of your exploits incredible as they are uh, most people will find it hard to believe that you haven't grown up around swim bike or run no, I've all, I've always struggled with the running, but I come from a swimming background. I swam at club level as a junior, um, but I was never really that excited by the galas, and um, it never really grabbed me. So I I I left the gala scene and started the water polo club, um, but always knew in my heart that I wanted to play a sport called underwater hockey, or known as octopus, um, which is associated with the diving clubs. And my dad was a scuba diver. Um, and you had to be 14 at the time to join the club. So um, I waited till I was 14, and then when I turned 14, left the water to polo and started the underwater hockey and um, started training as a diver as well. And, yes, I played that for many years. I only gave that up um, probably about 2016. So I had, a, I had um, yeah, a good 20-plus years of playing. I always thought that water polo is a perfect training ground for triathletes, particularly when you go on the mass starts or when you come to a turn boy and it becomes a bit of a, a bun fight. Yeah. And I used to coach this young lad who was in the Great Britain under 23 squad and he used to spend a couple of months hanging out with the water polo team just to get used to those sort of high elbows and fast arm turnover. Yes, very much so. Um, I only played as a junior, but even then you've got a lot going on under the water, pulling pushing kicking and mm. yeah it's a bit it's a bit like they say like a duck it's all calm on top but underneath there's a lot going on that you don't see and yeah they wear hats with ear protectors for a reason so <laughs> yeah, yeah it's um, quite, quite physical so tell us a, a little bit more about octopus then um because i'm always intrigued by this sport you know is it is it something where you have to be a, a, a good swimmer or just comfortable with holding your breath and and um popping your ears um a bit of everything really um it's a team sport so you have um you if people don't know it's played on the bottom of a swimming pool where in mass snorkeling fins and you've got a small bat and you push a plastic coated lead puck along the bottom of the pool and there's a trough at each end which is the goal 
um, and you can flick the puck, you can push the puck. Um, it's surprising how far you can flick the puck and the height you can get. Um, and if it hits you underwater, it's, um, it does quite hurt. And many, many bruises, always covered in bruises. Um, but you have you have strikers forwards, you have defenders. Um, you don't have an out-and-out goalie. Your last man will move up and down the pool with the game. So, um, and then chase down any attacks. So, you um, and when you're playing at competition level, you'll have a team of ten, and six of those will be in the water at any one time, and the other four will be in the sub bin. But it's a rolling sub; you can sub as often as you want. So, um, I used to play striker um, for my speed, and I would generally have a one-on-one sub. So I'd be in work really hard out. Um, so then swap over and you're swapping over quite quickly really um, but as you can imagine it's a very hypoxic game all of your work is done holding your breath um, you come up breathe one two breaths back down again so very much a team sport because you need to pass and play and yeah plays at different depths generally the bigger competitions are between two and three meters deep so yeah. it it does keep your it keeps your fitness up nicely and it's a very sociable team sport and I, I did enjoy it um i played for the local club but because of the nature of the sport which is quite niche um you used to have to travel away a lot for competitions or other people to play and um i played at a national level and um tried out for the gb team and yes yeah, so i've been in and out of the gb team for many years going to european and world championships on the elite team and later on when I turned 35 for the masters team. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting sport and it does get you to travel very much like triathlon. You get to travel around a lot, but you do it within a team and it's very sociable and, um, yeah, you make some good friends. I've got some friends all from around the world that, um, I'll know for life and I still keep in contact with. Wow. So I'm thinking you have to come up for air and then you dive down again and, what do you do? Just make one pass, or maybe dribble the dribble the puck a little bit, and then you have to come up for air again. Or do you do you have a? Is it tactical where you're thinking, right? As I get down there, I'm going to be able to do this and move that over there, and then I'm going to come up over there. Oh, it's um very much um that's the tactics of the game. Um, different positions will have different objectives, but it's the team sport. So you will know from gelling with your team that if so if somebody has the puck, they will probably be expecting me to be in that place at that time. And they will pass to that direction. So it's your job to work hard to be there. So the trust is there. They will flick it through. You'll get it. And then as a striker, I try and receive the puck or back tackle it off of a defender and then turn. And then it's a sprint out towards a goal, which sometimes you have to swim around another defender. So you bow around or straight to the puck. But as you can imagine, as you get nearer to the goal, the defenders get a bit more physical. It's supposed to be a non-contact sport, but it's not because if they can do something to slow you down enough without the referee seeing, that will happen and then they will stop the goal. And if there's a foul or a penalty, it's it's um, at least they've stopped the goal. So there's a lot of tactics in play there. But as a general, as a sprinter, you're racing around, trying to get into position all the time. And when you've got it, you're sprinting with it. Yes. Mm. I mean, I can see how water polo, having a, a fast arm turnover, high elbows, freestyle stroke and a powerful kick to move through the water and then that sort of egg beater kick to stay in one place and get some sort of elevation. Um, I can see how that will work. I guess underwater, it's mostly hybrids of, of breaststroke, is it? And some No, it's it not. Because you're wearing kicking? fins. Because you're oh, wearing you are fins, wearing fins, right. It's mainly yeah. with your legs and uh, very much like the triathlon world has developed with new carbon shoes and disc wheels and carbon, there's carbon fins. And um, yeah, there's a very much of a snap, different shapes for different people, foot pockets to make it more streamlined. And yeah, you can, you can whip around the pool quite quickly there, but they are um, they, new people that haven't used it much. It's, um, it's quite a strain on your ankles and your legs, yes which mm. I am now finding as a runner, I seem to get a lot of lower limb injuries, which is down the perineal tendon, down the outside of um, mm. your ankle, because uh, as a swimmer, I've got floppy ankles. And then from the underwater hockey, that just makes you mean that you, you're overextending all the time. So, yeah, I do suffer down there quite a lot with um, injuries. 
I will try and find a video on um, YouTube of Octopus and put that into the show notes so people can get a sense because I'm sure in, in their minds and sort of thinking I'm partly getting it. I guess we'll get all will be revealed if we can find it. It's an underwater very, yeah, video. it's very difficult. If you if you YouTube it, you'll find a lot of videos out there, and you need to watch it for a little bit because at the first glance, it just looks like a pool of piranhas being fed. Um, but if you can find one that's played in a bit of a deeper pool, um, say three meters, you um, you'll see a bit more of the tactics and play. Yes. Do you, I mean I've dived? Um, you know, I do some scuba diving, and I know when you start to get down around three or four meters. You have to be equalising your ears, don't you? Particularly the first time. Is there a lot of that as part of your practice, and then it becomes second nature? It, it very much so. Yes, it um, it takes a little while. If you if you're a little bit bummed up or something, then you will probably need to pinch your nose when you're going down. But generally, you just do it by just um, almost half swallowing, just moving your tongue to the back of your throat, and it becomes second nature. It's the same as clearing the snorkel. You don't even think about it. You it just happens. Yes. Mm. Okay, so let's move on then. So that that first triathlon in twenty fourteen, what was it that tickled your interest about having a go at that? Um, I got back into um, swimming in my early twenties, twenty twenty one, into a masters club, and um, just to supplement the underwater hockey, really. Um, and I enjoyed it, and I'm still a member now and train with them occasionally. Um, and the pool we swam in used to. The Exeter Tri Club used to come in and run an aquathlon series each year. So fancied having a go at it. So I ended the first ones were probably about 2010, 2011, 12. I did a couple of aquathlons out of the pool because they were running a pool and I could see people doing it. And um, yeah, I had a go, but my swim was okay. I could swim in the top wave um, and then I'd go backwards on the run. So it's, but you got to meet other multi sport athletes. Um, throughout that and mm-hmm. I then um, I work as an electrical engineer and a customer of mine he did multi-sport as well and he came in to see me on a I remember it was a Friday evening and um, he came in to see me we talked about work and then he asked oh, what are you doing the weekend I said oh, not much with you and he was like I'm doing the X Valley Triathlon um, I said I've heard about that it's really hard to get into because it sells out really quickly ironically this year it's been cancelled because of low numbers but back then you could it was like sell out straight away you had to be on the button to get in so he said that he knew a space available and would I fancy doing it I was like go on then (laughs) so that was Friday night and um, I went and saw a friend on Saturday borrowed some kit and raced it on um, Sunday morning and yeah I had a road bike that I'd picked up a couple of years previously and started doing a bit of cycling and um yeah, I came 14th in that and was hooked, absolutely hooked. And yeah, then I was looking for my next one and my next one. So it was, um, yeah, really caught the bug. And you are an Outlaw Ambassador, as I've already mentioned. Maybe you could um, tell us about your first Outlaw experience. Yeah, I, uh, my first Outlaw experience was actually a sprint, um, which they uh, they probably still didn't this year. They hold a sprint on this Saturday before the whole app, uh, before the half on the Sunday mm-hmm. and I did it because it was a qualifier for the um sprint championships a uh, European sprint championships up in Glasgow in 2017 I believe um or 18 and yeah I just thought oh I could I could use that as a qualifier and then go to Glasgow to race so I went along and um saw the setup I was really impressed with it all and you can see everybody milling around looking registering going to the athlete briefing for the for the half distance the next day i did mm-hmm. the spring um and yeah i thought well, i'll have a look and again i knew it was something you had to get into quite early because it would sell out very quickly back then and mm-hmm. um so when the when the entries came out um i jumped on it and um got myself an entry for the following year which was probably yeah 2018 i think or 19 yeah Mm-hmm. And um, then I did the the Nottingham half, and absolutely thoroughly loved it. Yeah, it's it's a real it's a really good it's a really well organised race, really good. Um, it's competitive, but it's also very friendly. Everybody's very friendly. It's like you, the outlaw team have their rules and regulations, but they try and make it as inclusive as they can. And it's like running down the line with your family or kids. It's other events that's banned and frowned upon, but they will allow that. 
and um there's just little things that they're not um they just they're more inclusive than some other of the bigger national events and mm. huge huge amounts of numbers um you really get that big event feel feel like you're being looked after the food's always good afterwards and the racing's hard so yeah and this it's just a almost a purpose-built location for it isn't it it's um yeah mm-hmm. apart from the road surface but i think anywhere you go in the country now you get that don't you <laughs> it seems like it yeah yeah it's um it's, it's nice when you go to other countries isn't it and see that there actually is such a thing as normal tarmac yes yes so what, what where did you first outlaw victory come then um that sprint distance believe it or not um i i won that overall but it was a rolling start so you went off in your age group waves because of the qualification process but i did have the fastest time of the day um on that one and then the following year i think i came second overall behind will clark who managed to pick up the course record that day and um had his massive check presented to him on the podium (laughs) stood next to me yes so Mm. um yeah that was like yeah the win was the spring but um yeah i've had a i've had a second and i think i've had a third as well at the outlaw half okay so you've had a win um have you raced at all the other events that we've done the i've done i did bowwood which was the first one about two years ago um again that was good that was i think that was the first time outlaw had been down to bowwood so mm-hmm. uh, yeah cracking location all set up well um the bike was challenging with a nasty hill at the end and even the run was unlike the nottingham path which is all flat around the lake apart from when you go around the canoe center it was off-road gravel path through the woods which i think helps break it up a little bit it doesn't always give the fastest times but it helps break the run up and you've got different areas you're running around the lake so i've done bowwood i I did outlaw x last year which was the british champs as well and um yeah, that was that was a really good race. That's something I do like about the outlaws. When you give them your swim time, that will set you off in your ability. So rather than just your age group, so I can normally get a start near the front and race at the pointy end of the race, and it's it's just it's just great racing. Yeah, you get that buzz from it. You manage to get out on the bikes, and you can sit in the bike packs and work. When I say bike packs, you're drafting at um, twelve meters distance, but it's still keeps the motivation up and makes you push when the surges go and um yeah and then it comes down to a foot race and um yeah it you definitely have to dig hard to um get around that course when you you're close with other people in racing so yeah it's a, that's quite interesting you say that i had a conversation with a, uh, another chap the other day and he was saying that if you look at the stats a lot of the best times in ironman come from in age group come from folks who don't have the best swim they're not they're not really slow but they aren't out at the front of their age group so they're able to get onto the bike with lots of cycles in front of them and even though they're not drafting the you do get a drafting effect as you're passing people and tucking in behind individuals or small small packs that form inevitably and then you can move past them and so you get you know you get pulled along by each little um each, each little group of people that you're overtaking uh, I, I thought that was quite interesting. So I wondered if, um, actually, if you did start further back, you, you might have a better time or a better finishing position. Although oh, you, I, think, I don't know how you can, I don't know, I don't know how you can have a better position than winning your age group anyway, unless it's an overall thing. No, it's um, it's a, it's a double-edged sword, I think, um, because when I've done the outdoor events, I've started right at the front in the first, say, twenty people. So I'm in that bike pack that is the lead of the race, and you've got people going for their pro licenses and is or some of the best age groupers in the country racing. So you are in a group of top athletes. Whereas where I've started in my age group and you're further back, you've got the field of all the other athletes get for it, and you can use people as little slingshots to come up to them, go around them, but they do slow you down as well in that scenario and um an example i could use of that was i did alberfeldi or oh, a couple of years ago it's the british championships middle distance up there and they started everybody off in four waves and i was wave three and um so i had about 50 percent of the field in front of me and they're small roads and that and um so i think there was about eight or nine hundred people racing and i was set off in wave three i come out of the water first in my wave but then there's 400 ish people in on the road in front of me 
and I managed to get my way through most of them. I think I think I crossed the line in top ten, but my times were about six or seven minutes down on the younger chaps that I've raced at Outlaw um, that were at the front of the race that had clear space in front of them and were working together. Mm-hmm. And my power numbers were similar and my run was okay, but it just shows the difference it makes to be at the front of the race or having work from the back poking your way through. So, yeah. I guess those younger guys would have been pretty happy about that because uh, I understand from uh, Helen Gorman that um, that's one of the reasons why you like racing so much uh, is because you give the younger guys a bright and that's why they're always looking over their shoulder to see where you are. Um, so if you yes, have to start at the front with them, it keeps them on their toes a little bit. It does. It keeps them on their toes, but it also gives me a chance to to race with the people that are coming up through and starting to become the future of our sport. And it's just it's just nice to toe the line with those guys. What well, I'm 45 now, so it's, I'm not going to be towing the line with them for much longer, I can't imagine. But whilst I can, I do enjoy it. And it does give me a buzz to race at the front end of that race. Let's talk about this amazing feat that you had. Was I think it was last year, Donald, where you won all five GB age group titles that were available in your age group. And... That's an impressive feat, but what's more impressive is that no one's actually done that before. No, um, yeah, um, British Triathlon, I think, have looked into it, and they 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 don't know of anybody that's done it before. But it was um, it was a lot of things fell in place for that to happen, and it's something that had been on my mind for a couple of years. But the events had always been too clumped together, or they clash with um, other big races or championships. But last year, they just seemed to be sprung spread out enough that i could get them all in and race other events and i stayed injury free so it's not just performing at the event it's turning up on the start line injury free mm. and being able to race so they started off with i think the the duathlon was in march time and then it finished with the outlaw x in i think it was early october it was a very late one so yeah they were spread out nicely uh, End of September, that one was, yeah. It was end of September, yeah. I remember it was cold because they shortened the swim, didn't they? It was uh, <laughs> misty and cold that morning. So, um, but yeah, yeah it was yeah. Just, um, it just, everything fell into place and I was able to turn up at each event um, fit, healthy and able to race. So, yeah, I was, it, was, um, it was a good bucket list tick off doing that. Yeah, well, I, I think um, that probably makes you the most dominant British age group triathlete we've ever seen. I'd like now to there's, think so. There's, yeah, a won... there's a challenge I'm putting out there to be challenged. Yeah, so I won British Age Grouper of the Year two times in a row now, which is a nice recognition from dates are voted for by the membership. So yes, it's it's good. But um and I think two of those, the sprint and the standard, I had the fastest time overall of the race as well. So it's um not just winning my age group, I'm winning the race overall also. Mm. So what we need to do then is rewind a little bit and ask, well, how how does a guy in his mid-40s who's got two growing boys of eight and ten who has a full-time occupation as an electrical engineer, so no doubt you're busy, how, how does that person manage to fit all of that training in to to not just to get to be so um, so dominant, but also to stay there? Um, it, you, you're right. It's, it's all about managing your work-life balance, which can be tricky. Um, I think I'm lucky that I've got a supportive wife that's into sport herself. So she knows the importance that it plays in or sport plays in our life. So she runs quite a lot, cycles. Um and she's she's very good on the nutrition. She she um, we sit down at the weekend or Mel sits down at the weekend and says, right, what we're gonna have each day for the week, food-wise, gets a um online order shop. So that all comes in. So we know what we're eating all the time. And so that's a big part of it. So we're not worrying about that. Um, And then I think the main part of it is having a routine and having consistency because there's always the times when you wake up early or late and you don't feel like training or something throws up and can I still train? Can't I? And it's, it's knowing to listen to your body when you can and can't, but is it your body saying no or are you thinking I can't be bothered? It's um, they're two different mindsets. So um, yes, the work life balance and it's, continually changing with work commitments and family commitments with say the boys with 
all the clubs they do, I have to run them around, drop them in. Um, the number of broken turbo sessions I do now where I might do 40 minutes and then I've got to run up, drop one of them to swim in, then come back another half an hour, then go and get one of them from wow. Beavers and come back. So, yeah, so, but at least it's getting the session, even if it's broken, it's getting it done. So, but I generally, I train about 16 to 18 hours a week. I train twice a day, wow. most days. Um, so I get a session done early in the morning. I get up at about quarter to six. I try and get an hour, hour and a quarter in before work, um, which is why everybody else is asleep. And I always think at least that one's done. It's in the bag, no matter what the day throws at you. Mm. Then I get, and then I do another session in the evening. Um, and that might be as soon as I get home from work, it might be at eight o'clock at night after we've sorted the kids in the clubs out and such. So yeah, I always try and get one in the evening and that all those sessions take different formats. If they're run, I try and split the running up with the cycling and the swimming and sometimes um, do club rides, group rides, but as ultimately you do end up doing a lot of the training by yourself because of the mm. times that you can fit things in. What split would you say you have between the three disciplines? I suppose firstly I'd ask, how many of each discipline do you complete in each week? Oh, as a as a percentage, I would say it's probably about 50% on the bike, mm. 20, 25% swim, and then 25 to 30% run. But mm. I do a lot of my running very steady, um, steady for my pace. Uh, so that because it's the weight bearing, it's the one where I seem to get the injuries. I do the mm-hmm. speed and hard work in the bike and on the pool. Uh, sorry, on the bike and in the pool. And then yeah. I just get miles on my legs when I'm running. So and that seems to keep the injuries away. And I, I always try and split up run days by day. So I won't run consecutive days unless I'm doing a park run or something. Um, and I'll probably cycle six days a week um, and swim probably four sessions, maybe five a week as well. Mm. That's quite interesting what you say there about... Um how you feel like you're more prone to injuries as a swimmer. Um, I think that's quite common. You know, you talked about having floppy ankles. So the things that help you to be a good kicker, are the things that count against you when you want to do lots of running miles. Um, uh, and that ties in with what my physio has said on, on several podcasts is that um, from her evidence, people coming into the clinic, the triathletes, that 70 to 80% of injuries you get are, are related to running. And most of those are below the knee. So, you know, and if you add into that floppy ankles as well, that's yes. a that's a pretty that's a pretty powerful indicator that you need to be careful when you're running. But but then you know, and that, that seems like smart training to understand that physiologically, um, your aerobic um, transport system can still get a benefit from swimming hard and cycling hard, and as long as you're running consistently, you can still probably um, that can still translate into good running performances. It can. And I, I was trying last, last Christmas, I tried to be a bit more proactive than reactive. And I went and saw a chiropractor and booked him for a block just to see if he could work with me a little bit to see if the, we could nail why I was getting all these injuries. And um, he's asked me what tra- trainers I train in and what trainers I run in. And I took him down because he hadn't really heard about the carbon shoes. And I took down my racing shoes and he's like, oh, blimey. He goes, yeah, you, you've got you've got floppy angles already. And now you've got no stability in your issues. So like you're working on overtime. Mm. Yeah. There. So he sort of pinpointed that, but they give you that advantage that I feel you need to be racing at the front end of the race at the moment. And also that energy recovery to help you keep the speed up, but keep, keep going as well. Like, it's just that advantage that um, you need. It's only when you're really doing sharp, tight turns that, you're really struggling most of it like up and down that lake in the picture behind you you're running straight most of the time so it's not too much of a problem interesting what you say there about the stability i've noticed at the end of long races like the outlaw and and other races that i've been to watch that a lot of folks don't have that strength and stability around the hips or the um or the lower leg to be able to control what happens with those shoes and so you see them rolling in on the uh, on the medial side of the shoe and just almost running not need because they're so tired, they just can't control that. And I'm thinking, well, you might be getting to the end of the race, but I wonder what your legs are like afterwards. You know, do you have sore Achilles? Do you have really bad feet? Um, so I do think that perhaps 
that's something that a lot of folks haven't considered is whether they need to do some specific strength training for their ankles in order to and, and preparation in order to be able to wear shoes like that and get the most out of them. Yeah, well, the chiropractor recommended I um, do a bit more work in the pool with um, little training fins on and just said, try and build up your ankle strength like you used to have with your underwater hockey, just to give mm-hmm. you a bit more strength and stability around the area. So I try and do a bit of work with um, fins in the pool now as well. And it, um, really interesting to hear you talk about being proactive there and um, going to visit the chiropractor and try to work out how to stop injuries rather than what most folks do is go when they're when they're injured. And of course, that's the point where you're not training either. Um, what other what other prehab type preparations do you take then in order to keep turning up on the start line fit? Um, I work with nutritionists the last couple of years, and I've had some metabolic testing done and. That's mm-hmm. been really interesting. Um, where where your thresholds are, get a proper um, your heart rate zones, get them measured out properly for the bike and the um, the running. And um, I've been where well, hit, we wore a glucose monitor for a while as well, so monitored my glucose levels during races, during training, during sleep, and um, come up with some nutrition strategies and. Um, yeah, some very interesting data came out of that, especially with my running, where um, generally you have carbohydrates as a fuel source and fat as a fuel source. And those, as you get to a certain speed, those lines cross and you're using more carbohydrates and you're mm-hmm. um, using less fat. And then it's a downhill slope after that. You only got you can only sustain that for so long. But mine seem to come together and then go along and then they come apart again. And there's a sweet spot. And um, for me, it's about 330 kilometer pace which is about my marathon pace. So um, mm-hmm. yeah, it was interesting to see that. And I can get into that. I can get into that sort of pace and maintain it for quite a long time. So um, yeah, it's interesting. But if I go quicker than that, I know I, I'm starting to burn matches. And um, yeah, it's, I can see that from when I do the shorter stuff, like 5Ks or 10Ks. It's, I, I have to go to the pace that's sustainable for that speed, yeah. Mm. So that that's... I guess that's what people know as fat max pace, isn't it? As yes. in where you're, where you've got your maximum fat burning opportunity around three thirty, and that's really interesting that you've identified that because I think a lot of people just make assumptions on where their heart rate is and what pace they go at, but they don't spend enough time training to um, to try and improve that. Or you know, yeah, and on the bike, spend too much on the bike. They do it on a power zone, and um, it was. He was very surprised how low it was where I went into using um, carbohydrates as a fuel source. And he said, you need to, I think it was around the 200 watts or 180 watts. And he goes, you should be able to get that to 240 before you're really starting to rely on your carbohydrates. And so we worked on that over probably the last 18 months, doing more lower intensity stuff because most of the bike stuff I do, I'll fuel it. And uh, he's like, you need to stop fueling so much on your bike so that you can um, get your body used to using more fat as a fuel source and bring your power. You can sustain using fat up. And um, yeah, we've managed to creep. I've not been retested, but uh, we've managed to work on that and retest it. And I think a good example of that was um, long course weekend last year. Um, We're on the bike and I went over a bump about 15 miles in and I lost my bottle on my back which had all my energy drinking and all i had was a light electrolyte mix and a gel in my pocket and um yeah i managed to get through the 112 miles on the bike and break away from the group in the last 20 miles and time trial it in at about 95 percent of my ftp after a five-hour ride so yeah i can i can rely i'm quite good at the tail end of a race i can rely on my um energy reserves for it I'm interested to hear more about your experiences with the constant glucose monitor. What did you learn about yourself and uh, how your body responds to food? It's very interesting. I used yeah the the glucose monitor on the I used it on the Super Sapiens app, and mm-hmm. it's it is interesting. If you speak to a diabetic about it, they're like, oh, I don't know. Those numbers are different to the ones they use, and they're like, oh, that's not a peak, that's not a trough. But for an athlete that's not diabetic, it is a peak and a trough. Mm-hmm. And, it it was very interesting. I, I I changed what I had for breakfast because um if you have I've I've been having porridge for breakfast for a long time now, but 
even the toppings you put on it, like um, I put banana in it. If you put any um, golden syrup on it or that, you get that big sugar spike and then it comes right back down. And then your body releases insulin to counteract it. And that's why you get a crash. So if you just have a banana in it, it's, mm-hmm. it stays so much more stable. You're not hungry afterwards. And it's all about keeping that glucose level as steady as you can, even down to taking um, gels how far before a race. So with running, I need to take them quite close to the race, but with cycling, I can get away. No, sorry, cycling, I need to take them quite close to the race. Running, I can get away with taking them a bit far because if you take them too early, you get a spike, then you get a crash. And then when you go to start the race, your blood sugars will be low and you, you've got to reproduce them to bring them up. So, yeah, it was very interesting on that front. Yeah, I took part in the Zoe project and we had two weeks of um, using a CGM. And I I've, I got a bit of pushback from some diabetics who were saying, you know, this is just a this is just a flight of fancy for all of you people who have normal normal situations. You don't need them for medical reasons. Um, but I do think that if you dive into the data and do some experiments, it can be very useful for athletes. I think a lot of people are just looking at numbers and they, they wear it because it's a fashionable thing to do and then but they don't really know what they're doing with it. On the Zoe on the Zoe project, they give you certain things to follow. So firstly they they get you to eat these um muffins at a very specific time and the muffins have got a very specific recipe and everybody that does this project gets to have the same muffins and has to do the same controlled sort of um, digestion but then the next day they give you um, porridge oats just porridge oats a very specific number I think it's 45 grams mixed with water nothing else it's like gruel I I never thought I'd eat something that was so tasteless and if you don't get the mix right it's like eating sort of half half ready cement um the next day you had to eat 45 grams of peanut butter right so you've gone from pure carbohydrate to pure protein and the third day you have peanut butter combined with um or the oats combined with the peanut butter Um, and then on the fourth day they give you the oats to eat but you go for a walk and then on the fifth day you get the peanut butter to eat and you get the oats second and so just altering the order of when you take these things in um Going for a walk after you've eaten something with carbohydrate takes the edge off your blood sugar spike. Um, having protein in makes a massive difference. I mean, even though you think, well, oats on their own don't have massive amounts of sugar, it is, it is mostly carbohydrate. And if you haven't eaten anything overnight, you do you do get a spike. But adding protein into it means you don't get quite the same spike. So looking at those and seeing what your results are um, is, is fascinating. And I know from the studies they've done that even identical twins have different responses to the same foods. Um, so, yeah, you can, you can if, if you're willing to do the experiments and, and set controls, you can learn an awful lot about your system and um, it'll be unique to that individual. So you can't, you can't say that just, you know, you, you might not get a, a spike out of having banana and porridge, but somebody else might do. So they have to learn for exactly. themselves. Yeah. yeah. So it's very interesting. I, I think, it's interesting you say about going for a walk. <laughs> I, I try and go for a walk at lunchtime um, just to leave the office really around the village. And um, yeah, if I eat my sandwich before my walk, I don't really get much of a spike. But if I do my walk and then eat my sandwich, you get a spike because your body is there, it's using it. So yeah, it's very interesting. Yeah. And um, we talked about you doing some work in the pool with the training fins. Do you do any other formal strength and conditioning or daily mobility work or core training just to maintain the robustness and resilience of your body? Do I used to try to not have any time. <laughs> it's a it's complete slap risk for that. Um, no, I used to try to, but it's I've I'm very busy and it's something I neglect. And um, no, I don't. I don't do hardly any core work at all. No, so um, not much. No, no. It's um it's something that if I had it's like anything. If you had a bit more time, that's what I would integrate into it. But I don't see the point of just doing it ad hoc here and there. I think it needs mm-hmm. to be routine and set in that you're doing it all the time. Yeah, and I know that all the listeners uh, of my podcast for whom I'm preaching constantly about the benefits of mobility, strength and conditioning will throw this back in my face and say, ah, you see, look, that guy's doing okay without it. So why is, why is it necessary? You might just be an yes. outlier, of course, Donald. I might be, and I know I know it would benefit me if I could do it. So it's all about marginal gains, and I think there's a gain there to be had. But Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. Um. I was really interested to hear about how you and your wife sit down and plan your meals in advance because when we're talking to 
folks uh, about nutrition coaching. So not not necessarily the specifics of what they should eat, but just how to make sure that they get the basics right every week. The first thing is to plan your meals in advance because you know you've you've no doubt you've got your training plan. Um, there'll be days when you're doing big miles, and there'll be days when you're doing hard stuff, and there'll be some easy days. And so you need to try and tie that in with your nutrition. I guess you'll probably know days when you might be out the off, you know, out of the house all day, and when you when you need to take food with you. Um, and so planning that in advance is a fundamental for getting that food. Otherwise, you end up being a hostage to whatever's available, don't you? And a Greg's Cornish I- pasty is not the best for fueling a half iron, uh, half outlaw triathlete. Yeah, well, I yeah, I I always make my pack lunch, so I take the same things to work each day. So I have my fruit, my sandwich, and such. And underneath, they all joke about underneath my desk there's porridge oats, there's um, cereals, and that protein mm-hmm. bars in my drawer. So I do try and eat that for other day. And then, like you say, in the evening, we have a home cooked, healthy, balanced meal. But I am, I'm, I guess I'm a bit of a slave to me and Mel. We'll have a similar size portion, so that won't be enough for me on its own. So I'll supplement that with like fruit and yogurt, maybe a protein shake or something. But if we're having something with pasta in it, I'll normally chuck extra pasta in the same mix and then I'll just have um, the pasta really. So yeah, to, to suit my training loads. So yes. Do you, do you have any other, what I would call high performing human habits? You know, do you have, um, do, do you really maximize the amount of, sleep you get do you spend time meditating do you do any breathing practice is, is there anything else that you were uh, you do that enhances enhances your training other than the stuff you already mentioned no again it's the time thing i don't do that um and sleep if there's anything i could do with it, it's probably a bit more so i don't we you've had a busy day you sort the kids out we put them to well we say put them to bed we send them upstairs maybe eight half eight nine o'clock and then we don't eat until about nine o'clock. So it's a bit of downtime on the sofa, watch a bit of telly. I don't go to bed till about 11, half 11. And then I'm up at quarter to six. So I could, mm. I know there's an easy win to have some more sleep there if I can go to bed earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And the breathing, I've got this, um, it's a device that you can, you just put it in your mouth and it just resists your breathing um mm-hmm. it's just um and i've got that in the van that i drive and um i just do some breathing exercises with that sometimes so it's just handy there and um but um yeah my my breathing my lungs and my breathing are fairly good from um the underwater hockey days and when i swim the, you're doing your breathing exercises then i guess i i breathe on fours sixes a tumble turn every turn um so you're holding your mm-hmm. breath we do some hypoxic sets sometimes and i i generally i don't find them easy i just find them easier than others because i can i can go up the ball i can i can breathe on nines for quite a while this um mm-hmm. yeah whereas and hold the breathing pattern through the time so i guess um because i'm asthmatic as well and i always remember as a child if i my asthma was playing up breathe swimming would help because it controls your breathing Mm. so um, yeah i guess that i guess swimming does is a type of breathing controlled as well so do you do you do you use your breathing when you're running do you do you purposefully focus on your breathing to try and keep the rhythm in your in your stride um unknowingly yes i do i try not to pant because i know from the underwater hockey days that you need deep breaths you need to utilize the full um amount of your lungs so i try mm. not to pass so i will try and breathe deeply yes um we were at a, oh it was it was world championships in turkey and they were looking for some volunteers to do some testing on all it, it was everybody from all around the world was there. and i volunteered to do a lung volume test before a game and after a game throughout a, it was a competition of about eight days and mm-hmm. lung capacity because your lungs don't get any bigger, but your lung capacity changed mm-hmm. throughout that week because you're playing two games a day every day, and um, right, and it would be you would be able to use you would be able to utilize more of your lungs after a game than before because they were warmed up. But even throughout the week, by utilizing the full amount of your lungs, you had more lung capacity at the end of the week than you did at the beginning. So, yeah, breathing deep and um, especially when you're running is a is a big part of it. Yeah. Mm. It's, I'm just trying to think of that device you talk about. Was it the AeroFit? Is that or the Power Breathe? Is that right? Power Breathe. It was yeah, Power Breathe. 
Yeah. It wasn't a massive fan, but it's I, it's a tool that I use occasionally. Yeah, I wouldn't swear mm. by it or rave by it, but um, yeah, and they've got a little app that you go and you just and it tells you in and out and in and out. And it's just it's it's a bit you it's a bit you time as well, isn't it? It's a bit of turn off, concentrate on that, and just think about something else for a while. So mm. yeah, anything that does that, I think uh, I think that's the thing with training. Sometimes it gets you away from the day to day of everyday life and gives you a bit of headspace to think about things and some of my good mm-hmm. ideas and that I think when I'm running I think about things all the time and yeah it's quite nice yeah so which which events are we going to see you at this year Donald because I, I know that you've also got another outlaw distance event in Lanzarote that you're doing fairly soon um, have, yes. so maybe you can maybe you can tell us about that one first Everything seems to be clumped together beginning and end of season this year. Um, yeah, I'm going out to, um, yeah, Ironman Lanzarote in, well, next Saturday, so eight days now. So mm-hmm. knowing, quite anxious about it, knowing how tricky and technical, well, it's not technical, but it's, it's windy and hot, of course, so it's quite challenging. Sure. So, yeah, that's going to be a challenge. But my aim there is to try and qualify for the Ironman World Champs, which as we know now, is going to be held in Nice for the males. So to try and qualify for Nice at the end of the year on the 10th of September. Um, I looked at the start list. I think they just released the start list. I think there's 170 people in my 45 to 49 year age group. It's unbelievable. Yeah, so many people. Um, I come back from that and then I'm literally two weeks. I'm out to Madrid for the um, European Championships, um, putting on the GB colours for both sprint and standard so i think i've got the standard saturday lunchtime and then the sprint sunday morning so yeah if i'm if i'm recovering from lanzarote i'm sure the sprint is going to be quite difficult after a standard the day before but um as long as i keep moving i'm sure it'll be okay you're fitting a lot into those uh, few weeks aren't you because you've got yes uh, have you got long course weekend in there and then you come into holcomb as well that's it. Long course weekend in early July, and then um, I'm hoping to be at Holcomb because that's the well, the outlaw event. It's probably the only one I can make this year, and it's the British Championships. So, yeah, I'm hoping to be there. And um, then I qualified for the Ironman 70.3 World Championships in Finland in this August Bank Holiday weekend. Oh, August, so, August, okay. two weeks before Nice. So it's um yeah, it could be two of those back to back at the end of the season. Well, I was going to ask you um, about travelling, actually. I mean, it seems like you're going to be doing a fair bit of travelling, but being situated right down in the southwest there, um, that, that must make travelling a real challenge for you, just for events in the UK, never mind when you have to travel abroad. How do you manage to fit that in? Because it um, it almost adds an extra day before and after every event, doesn't it? It does. You have to you have to think about, it, especially like the outlaw events. I my wife's a keen park runner, and um, if she's on that Saturday, because I need to I need to leave to be able to register on the Saturday and rack on the Saturday. I need mm-hmm. to leave almost. I take the kids to the park run she's doing, and then she comes over the line. I'm like, there you go, <laughs> and I'm off. But that's as early as I can get away. But I've got a transporter van which is really handy, and I've got that carpet lined and kitted out and i put a mattress in the back of that sometimes so i can turn up to places even if i travel the night before i can just park up sleep in the back of and get a couple hours kit and then everything's in the van it's sort of like um your little hotel room isn't it it's not quite as luxurious but it definitely helps me get to events with all my kit in it and um you know get my head down as well if i want to but yeah you're right i'm i'm down in Tidmouth, which is about 15 minutes the other side of Exeter. So I'm at the end of the M5. So it is, it's straight on the motorway. I haven't got any little lanes, but I'm about an hour, hour 20 from Bristol. So then Bristol up to wherever I'm going. So it's a long, it's a, it's a long old trip. And you, anywhere I go, even going to Bristol Airport for flying is for Lanzarote. I've got to get to Gatwick Airport, which will be quite a, quite a drive as well. I, I I feel incredibly lucky the fact that Leeds Bradford Airport's only ten minutes from my house. Yes, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I could almost walk up if the uh, if the traffic was bad. Um, not that I'd want to. It's all it's all uphill, unfortunately. Yeah, they generally house. are. So, yeah, it's up there at the top of the hills. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, Donald, you have such a packed year. Um, I've no doubt from everything you told us that your body will be able to cope with it, and. Um, you're an outlaw ambassador this year. 
And if if there are any potential outlaws li- listening, if there's any existing outlaws listening, please do look out for Donald when you see him on the start line at, at Holcomb um, and in future years, um, because he is an inspiration. He's a true inspiration. He he has a normal life like like most people. He's he's not an elite athlete, and this is all that he does. He has a normal family and working and traveling life and manages to fit his training in and and obviously you've you've decided what's important to you donald and cut out a lot of the fluff that a lot of people have that's occupying their life and that's how you manage to get the training done yes that's right yeah it's um a lot of people at work they talk about what's on the telly watching the telly and that i don't get to watch much telly but i get to watch a lot of stuff when i'm on um on the turbo yeah that, that fills up my time it's um you can i can occupy myself quite well on the turbo but yes yeah, it's, it's i would say it's all about work-life balance. If you're not enjoying it, ask yourself why you're not enjoying it and are you sacrificing other parts of your life which are detrimental to you? But, um, mm. yeah, it's, you just have to stand back and have a look at it and listen to the people around you because they can see things that you necessarily can't sometimes when you've got mm. your blink and you're focused. And it does help with a reality check. And I do try and I do try and get out with some friends, especially in the triathlon sport, and just meet up with them outside the swim bike run sometimes. Maybe if it's to the pub or go somewhere else, or I've got a friend that comes around occasionally on a Friday night and he'll just come around my house and we'll have a chat. But yeah, it's help getting perspective on things and keep things consistent. Mm. Consistency and routine is key, really. Well, listen, um, best of luck at all of those events coming up, especially best of luck for Holcomb. We'll see you there. I look forward to um, announcing you to the start line and calling you across the finish line. So, Donald, you. you are an outlaw. Thank you very much, Simon. Thanks for inviting me on. You're welcome. Take care. Best wishes. Bye. Thank you again to Donald for joining me as a guest on this week's High Performance Human podcast. I hope you enjoyed his insights and feel suitably inspired by his achievements so far. You'll find lots of links in the show notes below. And to make sure you don't miss any one of my episodes in the future, please go to iTunes, search for High Performance Human Triathlon Podcast and click subscribe. And while you're there, we'd also love it if you can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can find a link in the show notes below. At the beginning of the episode, I mentioned about some of the benefits of joining our new membership program. And it'll enable you to dive deep into any of the topics we discuss so I can provide you with more in-depth, exclusive content and programs. And that'll help me to avoid having adverts on the show. It's my goal to ensure all of our SWAT members get back way more than the price of the subscription. And to that end, membership benefits include access to a growing library of training plans for a whole range of endurance events. And rather than mention them here, you just ask me what you would like a program for and I will create it. But I guarantee that I will have covered most things for you already. We also have some very specific programs that help you improve your FTP on the bike or improve your CSS pace in the pool. And we offer monthly workshops that are exclusive to SWAT members and free access to educational workshops on topics such as nutrition, sleep and strength. We also have a growing range of discounts on partner products. And these are products I believe in and I use myself, of which I do not get paid to promote. So if you'd like to learn more and access these member-only benefits, please visit my website, simonward.co.uk and click on the Work With Me link. You'll also find the link for that in the show notes below. So that's it for this week. Hopefully, I will see you on the next episode.